welcome to our continuing 2021 educational webinar series. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help manage every aspect of a compliance program, and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Sean McKenna, partner at Spencer Fain LLP in Dallas, Texas, and Mike McCarthy, Deputy General Counsel at the Cooper Health System in Camden, New Jersey, speaking with us today. Sean McKenna is a nationally recognized attorney who offers clients 22 years of healthcare and white collar enforcement experience, as well as fraud, abuse, and compliance insights and analysis. He spent almost 15 years with the federal government, CMS, OIG, and DOJ investigating and resolving civil, criminal and administrative fraud investigations, matters, and cases. As a former Assistant United States Attorney, Associate Counsel to the Inspector General, and General Counsel for the U.S. Department of HHS, Sean focuses his practice on matters involving the healthcare industry and regularly assists clients with investigations and related issues as well as advising clients regarding regulatory compliance with state and federal fraud and abuse rules. He is a frequent invited guest speaker at national, regional, and local conferences. Sean has been a part of the ABA Health Law Section's leadership since 2013 and a member of the State Bar of Texas's Health Law Section Council from 2013 to 18. Mike J. McCarthy is a Deputy General Counsel for the Cooper Health System in Camden, New Jersey. Mr. McCarthy primarily advises Cooper on compliance and regulatory issues, privacy and business transactions, and the 340B, 340B drug discount program. Before joining Cooper, Mr. McCarthy was an Assistant United States Attorney in the Northern District of Texas Dallas Division for five years. As an AUSA, he was a member of the Dallas Medicare Strike Force and prosecuted healthcare fraud. Prior to working as an AUSA, Mr. McCarthy was an assistant state's attorney for Miami-Dade County in Florida. Mr. McCarthy is a vice chair of the ABA Health Law Sections Publications Committee. He is also a member of the Board of Samaritan Healthcare and Hospice in Marlton, New Jersey. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja re recognition. For this Super Ninja, our team is turning the spotlight on Betty M. Perryman, Administrator at Southern Avenue Family Practice. Betty says, I have worked with my doctor for many years and I really enjoy the interaction with the patients. We have a concierge practice and we're able to spend more time with the patients when they come in. Our staff has been together for a long time and we work well as a team 
and it is a pleasure working with them. Congratulations, Betty. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. Sean and Michael, so happy to have you back. Welcome, thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, and thank you to the attendees. Uh, Mike and I have a somewhat ambitious agenda today, and we're gonna to talk to you about generally the Stark and anti-kickback statutes that address healthcare compliance, compliance with officials as well as clinicians, and then kind of move into the updates regarding some existing rules, primarily focusing on value-based arrangements, which have been a long time coming in the industry and are extremely complicated, but we're gonna try and do our best to kind of lay out at least a framework. But we do urge you that this probably will require some additional uh, efforts uh, on the part of the compliance officials and any other one listening in. And then we're gonna talk about general kind of best practices, leading tips, uh, regarding compliance issues that we have seen in our practices and then also as regulators and prosecutors. So with that, we'll get started. So Mike, why don't you talk to us a little bit about kind of what prompted some of these changes to the AKS and the START law. Thanks, Sean, and, and thank you, Catherine, and, and hello to the audience. Um, let's start with the, how this whole process began, which was in 2018, where the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services initiated what they called the Regulatory Sprint to Coordinated Care Initiative. So to break that down a little further, um, the subtitle of that was Four Lanes to Better Coordinate Care. The first lane was to improve a patient's ability to understand the care they're going to receive. Communication, right? So the second lane, increasing provider alignment on end-to-end -end treatment. The third lane was to provide incentives to coordinate care. The fourth was simply information sharing. Um, and you're gonna see, as we talk about these, um, the improvements, I would say, some of the new uh, regulations, how they are sort of, th that these four lanes form the foundation of what we're going to see and, and what um, uh, the improvements I think that they made years later. Moving on to the goal of the amendments, um, and again, you're going to be able to see these sort of these are threads that are going to go through our entire presentation. And certainly, if you were to look, we're not going to touch on everything, but you take my word for it that they do. Um, these threads go through each and every change, update, or new regulation. Um, and as Sean mentioned at the beginning, the value-based compensation arrangements, when you, when you really drill down, it can be incredibly complicated. 
our goal is to be able to to educate you, the audience, to be able to ask the right questions, to be able to understand the basic concepts, um, and to be able to advance the compliance goals of your institution um, through your understanding of these changes. Right, right. And so let's kind of go over and just a brief overview of the AKS and Stark. And I think most attendees probably have a working relationship with these statutes as it affects uh, whether you know your organization, whether you're a clinician, supplier, or a direct healthcare provider in an institutional setting. So let's talk about the AKS and the kickback statute. So this statute is one of I think two federal anti-conflict of interest statutes, if you will, meaning that they regulate the behavior of certain individuals regarding the recommendation or the offering of what we call, quote, remuneration, end quote, uh, to a particular referral source. And it involves a federal statute. It's criminal in nature, but essentially it prohibits the offering, the paying, or the soliciting of monetary compensation, whether in cash or in kind, meaning it can be monetary or some sort of indirect benefit, like a swapping type arrangement, et cetera. And so it kind of gets on both sides. And it's a criminal statute that has been on the books probably since the late 70s, so we're approaching, you know, 45 years or so now of the AKS. But what it basically says is that you cannot provide these monetary or some sort of in-kind benefit in exchange for a referral payable under a federal healthcare program. And payable under a, one of these programs can include Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, and other statutes as well. There's a myriad of different federal programs out there. And so what we're saying though, it doesn't have to be paid, it just has to be payable. And so think of this almost in your public corruption type analogy, that the federal government and Congress believed that certain arrangements were led to overutilization and they led to an increase in the cost for federal health care programs. Now, this only affects federal programs, not private pay. But remember, with the ACOs, shared savings programs, and definitely MCOs, Medicare, Advantage programs, you know, you may have a third-party administrator that could be a private contractor, but it could administer in part federal funds. And so here you see the statutory uh, citation, but also there's something called safe harbor regulations. And that means that if the proposed transaction would otherwise be improper, if you can meet the safe harbor for a particular arrangement, then it's okay. And one of the critical components here is that you know, this is a criminal statute. It's got to be a violation of knowing and willful. And we talked about it. It's just not physicians, but it's any person in the position to recommend or arrange for or recommend a particular item or service. And one thing also to consider is that just because you don't get within the four corners of a safe harbor does not mean you violated the anti-kickback statute. And, you know, I think the government has taken a dim view of that position. For the reason on this last bullet point is the one purpose test. The case law is pretty draconian when it comes towards providers. And it says if one purpose of the 
proposed payment or remuneration is to induce some awful referral, then you violated the AKS. Well, that is such a broad statement, it almost supersedes some of these safe harbors, right, Mike? And so what we're trying to say is that at some point, you're going to have an example of an arrangement, and we're going to talk about the value-based arrangements, where I think kind of pull back a little bit based on some of the regulatory rulemaking we're going to see, that if you don't meet the four corners of that safe harbor, doesn't mean you violated the statute. I think that's critical. It could add to the risk, and as a provider or an organization, you may say, well, this transaction is something we really want to do. We have an opportunity to increase the value of the quality care of services and coordination of patients, as Mike has indicated. And to me, that seems more in line with what the new regulations have proposed. Right, Sean. I mean, it's more of a, a holistic picture. Once you move out of the safe harbor, you want to go to exactly the place where you just went, which is, you know, why are we why are we doing this? What what's the purpose? And you know, a lot of times it's going to be, this is a huge benefit to a patient. This is advancing clinical care in some sort of meaningful way, and uh, that can be your sort of path to compliance. Right, absolutely. And, and it's something to consider that you know we think of any kickback a kickback, right? Some sort of cash in the envelope. Well, clearly that's in, contemplated by the statute, but and we also talk about kind of arrangements. Send me your lucrative patients under this federal program, and I will provide you a deep discount on other services. That's a common type of arrangement, and it could fit in with certain discounts that we'll talk about here. You know, and now with the value-based arrangements, I, I think there's an opportunity in my team to try and articulate a basis for these arrangements and transactions that could really give it that cooler. And one thing, though, I just want to talk about the penalties. It's that there's a criminal statute, but more importantly, it is a predicate basis for a violation of the False Claims Act. And we're not going to talk about the False Claims Act, but the False Claims Act is the bread and butter statute that allows the government to recover up to, or a whistleblower, up to three times the loss or the damages, plus penalties between 11000 and 21000 per claim, whether that's the HICFA 1500 or the UB204 these days. It also could result in particular administrative liability under the civil monetary penalty law, which essentially allows exclusion, et cetera, for violations of the AKS. And it's very similar to the actual statute and the False Claims Act laws that we're going to see. So you really have two different organizations, the LIG for HHS and DOJ. And maybe a third one, I guess, with whistleblowers, enforcing the contours and parameters of the AKS. And finally, these are just examples of safe harbors here on slide nine. We have, and they've been expanded, and every year the OIG for HHS, which is charged with enforcing and articulating these safe harbors, has an announcement and can essentially call to arms for any proposed regulations and new safe harbors. And we saw that at Mike just in 2018. So, but these talk about anything from your generic ones to the space rental, equipment rental, warranties, discounts, which I think are huge, especially if you're in and dealing with pharmaceuticals or other rebates uh, or devices. But the one big one that Mike will talk to is, you know, payments to bona fide employees and personal services and mentoring contracts, because a lot of the services 
for clinicians or individuals are going to fall within one of those two. All right, Mike, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the Star Clock? Sure, thanks, Sean. Um, so everybody mentions Stark Law sort of in the same breath as AKS, um, AKS Stark, um, and they're not, but they're not the same. They are similar, um, but certainly not the same. So the definition of the this, the Stark Law is that it prohibits a physician from making referrals for what we call DHS, payable by Medicare, or Medicaid to an entity with which he or she, the physician, or a fam immediate family member has a financial relationship. Then, of course, if that's the case, you have to look for an exception. Um, what's, what's key here is physician. So in a hospital-to-hospital -hospital situation, um, the analysis would be done exclusively under AKS. Um, and Stark Law is, is a little different um, in the sense that it is civil, not criminal, um, and it's also strict liability, which you probably couldn't get away with if it were criminal. No intent is required, and I'll have to confess, uh, when I first heard there are going to be changes to the Stark Law, immediately my thought was, they're going to get rid of the strict liability that has never been fair, um, and of course that was completely not true, and that's probably never going to happen. Um, just like AKS, Stark, a Stark Law violation can be a predicate for a false for False Claims Act liability, <clears throat> and obviously that is what any provider wants to avoid. Um, and certainly, <clears throat> if you do, <clears throat> as a compliance officer <clears throat> or as a member of a, a, a practice group or whatever, identify <clears throat> an, an overpayment. Um, you have a refund obligation, and you could potentially be excluded from all federal health care programs if you are found to have violated the Stark Law. Right. So the next slide. Mike, I think, yeah, I think it's critical to say that we're talking about two programs, Medicare and Medicaid, right, whether it comes in the form of fee-for-service or an MCO or managed care, right? And so that's really what Stark, because it's civil, and if you don't meet the exception, game over, right? And that's what you refer to as strict liability, Mike. Exactly. So we talked when we were going through anti-kickback. If you find yourself not squarely in a safe harbor, you want to look at some things like um, triple aim. You want to look at, you know, why is this, why is everybody entering into this relationship, this transaction? Is it to advance patient care, et cetera? You don't do that with Stark. If you don't meet the exception, you can put on that white hat, uh, but it doesn't matter. You've still violated Stark law, and you're going to have to deal with the consequences. So this slide and the next slide are, I think, good reference slides for the audience. Um, this particular slide walks you through what I think are four great questions you need to ask to get into a Stark Law analysis, with the first one being very important, and I will confess sometimes to skip immediately to two, three, and four. Um, it's got to be DHS. It's got to be a designated healthcare. It's got to be DHS. And before you get into any of the other aspects of a relationship that you're analyzing, you first have to make sure that 
it's it's DHS, and you can have potentially adverse answers to two, three, and four, but if it isn't DHS, then you're outside of Stark Law. And what we're going to do in the ensuing slides is take you through each of these sort of components of the Stark Law analysis. What is a referral? Um, what's an entity? Um, as we move through the presentation. Right, and I think one of the, the number four, Mike, is critical because it has to be commercially reasonable, right? So one of the most common arrangements, because we're dealing with physicians or their family members, and it has to be for certain services. But let's just say it's a physician service and it's a medical director. Well, you know, the most common component question I see for when I'm advising clients is, well, how many of these imaging center medical directors do you have? Is it commercially reasonable not only pay paying fair market value, which is a component as well, and we'll talk about that later on, but is it commercially reasonable to be paying that amount, right? Right. I mean, the what I always found helpful is to, to continue the, that definition and say is or the question and say, is the transaction commercially reasonable in the absence of referrals? So um, what referrals really mean is, is sort of outside revenue generated from the referrals, the calculation of which doesn't expressly enter into the, the proposed arrangement. So um, you wouldn't, uh, you, wouldn't you know, take on a, a transaction or, or enter into a relationship with a significant financial loss but it would be impermissible to say, well, it's not really that big of a loss because we get all these referrals as a result of the relationship. That's the kind of conduct that uh, I would say anti-kickback too, to a certain extent, is meant to prohibit. I said reference slide because of that important first question, are we dealing with DHS in the first place? So it's not that hard to use the internet to get these, this definition, but I think this slide is really important and helpful to you for the audience to have sort of at their fingers when performing this this kind of Stark Law analysis. Absolutely, but one one component I think that most people think is shocking is that you know hospice is not a designated health service, and that's something that I think involves a lot of physician relationships when we talk about Stark as well. You know, whereas home health or DME, et cetera, and obviously physician and PT services. So. I think it's critical to see what component and what line of business your organization has in order to determine if there is a physician relationship. So let's talk a little bit about what a referral is, Mike. Right. This is the beginning of the the analysis that um, that I referred to, and I, quite obviously, it's a it's a request or order for DHS. I mean, that's fairly obvious. But then, you know, it it can get a little murky as you move move to the next question, which is, well, the, the physician, was it really the physician who who made the request or for a consultation, we'll say? Um, so it can be a non-physician and then imputed to that physician, thereby making it improper. Um, you just have to look at it, like all these things to a certain extent, on a case-by-case -case basis, and it can be contextual when you're talking about a non-physician. Um, the next, right. and I think, we have a yeah, referral. And I think most of the time, yeah, I think most of the time, right, Mike, that you know, it's, it's inferred, as you pointed out, 
it's a physician referral. If somehow um, somebody, a clinician in the chain, uh, may actually makes the referral, whether it's for the technical or the professional component or even just the, the DRG or diagnostic component, uh, inpatient versus you know outpatient. I think there is that inferred notion that if, if a physician is ordering it or somehow initiated it, it's going to result in a referral. Exactly. That's right. So we have the referral, but then what about the to an entity furnishing DHS? Um, so this could be broad, right? A person or entity furnishes D DHS if it has billed or performed services billed as DHS. So what does performed mean? That can be, you can stretch that pretty far if you want. But then, as you'll see in the second bullet point, um, there are some limitations to who is on the hook for performing DHS and brought within the fold of the, the Stark Law. So it does not include staffing companies, um, third-party billing, for example, um, potentially a, a landlord. Um, so there are well, limits. I mean, I think there has to be some sort of medical determination by the physician that addresses an honor service, which is DHS. So I think there's a dual component here as well, Mike. But I agree that's just third-party contractors I don't think are performing, you know, DHS. Exactly. So what is a financial relationship? Well, first of all, when you're looking at this in terms of an analysis, you got to interpret this broadly. Not only did CMS explicitly say financial relationship will be interpreted broadly, um, just you need to to take a broad view anyways in doing an analysis because you have strict liability. So you, you have to be conservative. Um, the last bullet point talks about direct or indirect. This is, this is not a, a distinction that has remained static throughout the life of Stark. Um, there's always been, there ha well, until maybe the late, late 90s, early aughts, issues about you know, intervening entities, switching a relationship from a financial relationship from direct to indirect. An example that was used frequently um, that's been resolved, as we'll see on the next slide, is, you know, let's say a space lease to a physician practice. Now, what about the physician owner, the individual physicians? Does the group practice sort of intervene um, and prevent does it make it a, an indirect relationship just because there's a there's like a a PC between the um, the DHS entity, and eventually we got to the stand in the shoes rule, which it, which has collapsed that relationship. So a physician owner cannot use the practice, the corporate entity, as a shield. Um, right, and I think it's fair, Mike. Yeah, these statutes. Both AKS and Stark essentially say you can't do indirectly what you can't do directly, right? And uh, I mean, they collapse it like the accordion, and you may have 10 intervening corporations and holding companies, but at the end of the day, 
you know, trace the money. And that's the old adage and, you know, investigations. Where, who got the money and who got the benefit? And, you know, how many intervening factors, right? It's not going to break liability in this case. Exactly. I mean, it's it's a question of um, they set forth the rule, people found ways around it, and this is where we've ended up. Just like AKS, there are exceptions, um, which we've broken down in the slide to three into three genres: the ownership, service-based, and compensation. And you know, for ownership, with let's say the rural provider exception, um, that's a bit of a public policy nudge. Uh, you want to certainly encourage um, investment in rural healthcare. Service-based exceptions can get very complicated, and I would probably put some of these uh, value-based exceptions into this category. Um, with compensation exceptions, the two I want to highlight are office-based rental and personal service arrangements. So these have analogs in the AKS safe harbors but they're not one and the same. You always have to take a look at both um, before you can really sign off on the compliance, um, a compliance analysis. Right, and I think it's and critical. To that end, yeah, go ahead, Mike, sorry. No, go ahead. I was gonna say, I think it's critical because each one of these exceptions you know, as Mike pointed out, has to be fully compliant with to get the benefit of the start. Now, there are some technical non-compliance exceptions based on, in the last 10 years that came out, so if there's a period of time when, you know, the, the lease agreement wasn't in writing or signed by the parties for 30 days or something, you know, no one's going to pursue a potential Stark or False Claims Act violation based on that. And there's certain isolated natures, but the hallmark is got to be in writing. It has to be commercially reasonable, which is kind of subsumes the fair market value at arm's length negotiation. And typically, it's got to be for a year or more to make sure that there's some you know, some bona fide risk here. And that's really the hallmark of some of these Stark laws. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into the value based here in a moment. So this is a helpful chart. Um, and I think that's the sort of does a good job of comparing what these crucial differences are. Um, obviously, the, I, I would say the most crucial is intent is required for AKS, not required for Stark. Interestingly, um, there are two there are different agencies that, that regulate these. So AKS is regulated by HHS, OIG, and DOJ. Stark, the CMS. Now that can that plays a role in um, self-disclosures, who you disclose to. Um, but right here, we're just talking about just how different these can be, and I think that translates into the idea that we've kind of harped on, which is you got to look at both. You have to look at both. Right, absolutely, and it just it depends on the nature. But I think. The one thing that most people I look at the shock to is that the AKS is so broad. It can apply to third-party marketers, independent contractors, you know, anybody who's in a position to make that referral for an item of service payable under a federal health care program. And that is exceedingly large. And I can tell you, Mike, you know, out in private practice, you know, I have clients that run afoul of it simply because 
they use independent contractors in certain critical roles rather than employees, which sounds great from a business perspective, but from a fraud abuse analysis, it doesn't really hold muster. And the one thing we really haven't touched on is obviously just focusing on these two federal statutes, but every state typically has its own version of, you know, an AKS or a Stark that could impact not just state law, but private insurance as well, in addition to the potential criminal law applications out there under the Travel Act, et cetera. And so I think it's incumbent for everyone just to realize that if you're going to do an analysis on a transaction, you've got to look at the federal side and you've got to look at the uh, state analog as well. And on thirdly, there's sometimes, right, Mike, I think if Jersey has it, Texas definitely does, Position disclosure requirements that if you do have a monetary or compensation arrangement or an investment in some organization in which you make a referral to, you've got to disclose that in writing at the time of the referral to the patient. New Jersey has Cody, which is similar to Stark, but not the same. So you definitely have to do a Cody analysis as well if it's if you're if you're dealing with New Jersey law. Right. I think most of the big states. Uh, Florida, California, Pennsylvania, New York, Jersey, and probably Ohio, they typically have pretty robust attorney general enforcement of these state equivalents. So definitely make sure you take a look at that. All right. Well, Mike, let's just kind of go through the two kind of updated exception safe harbors, focusing first on the personal services and management contracts, because this is something critical that I see being used day in and day out by healthcare providers. And I think it's important to get it right. Yeah, exactly. So in contrast to maybe some of the, um, some of the other changes, these are, this slide here talks about some things that you, you would use as a compliance professional to evaluate relationships all the time. And things that you will recognize, relationships or, or terms and agreements you will recognize um, as being very practical. So the first bullet point, for example, um, there's no longer a requirement that when services are provided on sporadic, part-time, that the agreement for those services has must specify an exact schedule for the intervals. And the example um, I thought of right away was where you will need backup physician services, um, probably like a, a, special, a specialist. So um, if you have a grant, for example, where you, know, you must provide all of the services that are requested as part of the grant, you can't, um, let's say it's psychiatry, um, but potentially, if demand ramps up, you won't be able to handle that. You want to go out and have a physician or a psychiatrist who can handle the overflow, um, but you can't say exactly when that's going to be. There is no schedule. It just can be, listen, um, you need to come on board and start providing these services for at least you know, the next couple months. Um, there is no exact schedule. And I think, practically speaking, eliminating this requirement is, is, is welcome and potentially overdue. And then with the third bullet point, now you can have outcome-based compensation arrangements that are based on these 
quantifiable outcomes um, where you would select based on clinical evidence, credible, credible medical support, where you would want to involve um, professionals, practitioners, clinicians in crafting those, those outcomes and benchmarks. And here you can see um, where it ties back all the way to what we talked about in the beginning um, for looking at um, basing payment on, on outcomes. Yeah, that's important to know, Mike, and I agree wholeheartedly with that. One thing is that oftentimes, not necessarily with physicians, because I think you can base employee arrangements or contract arrangements based on RVUs, and that's very common, or even a third-party billing context of a percentage, but percentage of collections have always been deemed somewhat risky when you're dealing with the federal programs, especially as an enforcement mechanism for DOJ and OIG. And so I think this kind of pushes back on the notion that simply because you have a percentage, it could lead to overutilization, et cetera. And so instead of saying that, okay, the aggregate amount per month, so it has to be you know, simply $200 an hour, but we don't know what those hours are going to be. Theoretically, you would run afoul of the AKS, uh, at least safe personal services, safe harbor, but now if you say, okay, $150 per hour, and these are the hours and this type of work we're going to do, I think you have a much more compliant argument to meet the new personal services and employment or the contract safe harbor under the AKS. Now, Mike, the grid practice definition is exceedingly complex and really has to do with the aggregate and the way physicians are compensated, right? So generally we have this idea of the grid practice that if you and I are together, and we kind of pool our resources for DHS and apportion it by a line of service. That's how it used to be. But tell us kind of what this new kind of stark exception or definition has changed. Well, well yeah, exactly. It wasn't always – that's sort of the way it was done, but there was never any real clear – guidance as to how this should work. Um, and while this new change doesn't necessarily um, come up with something new, it does, you know, provide some definitive guidance. Um, and essentially, if you have, you know, five or less physicians, you can pull all the DHS. That's it. CMS actually, and this can get exceedingly complicated, which I do not want to do for the purposes of this presentation. But I'll give you an example that CMS uses. Um, they give the example of a group practice with 15 physicians divided up into three groups or pods um, with five physicians each. For each of the pods, the practice has to aggregate the profits from all DHS furnished by the group and referred by any of the five physicians in one of those pods, ABC. The practice may then distribute the overall profits from all of DHS for pod A using one methodology like um, personal productivity, um, the overall profits from all DHS for pod B with per capita, and uh, for pod C, something else, as long as it doesn't directly relate to the volume or value of, uh, of uh, DHS referrals for that particular pod. And this is new. Um, 
you have to the practice has to utilize the same methodology for distributing overall profits for within the pod. Um, and I'm sure there are this was already being done in a lot of places, but now we have some sort of definitive guidance. Right, and I think it goes back to what we're about to talk to next, Mike, right? The value-based exceptions uh, and safe harbors and, and the purpose here. So let's turn to that. And these are some definitions. Now, I will say to the listeners that these, there's about three critical types of value-based exceptions slash safe harbors, depending on the Starker and Kickback statute. And we're going to discuss those in a minute. But some of these definitions, I think, are somewhat ubiquitous for everything. And what we're going to talk about is, you know, what is the value-based activity? You know, the way to look at it is, what's the quality indication? What's the purpose, right? And, and this was an evolution from CMS's perspective. Well, especially when we talk about the Stark Law in the sense that, you know, we had gain sharing back in the late 90s, early 2000s. That was going to be the next big thing which allowed individuals to kind of profit and pool savings and distribute the savings to the physician owners. Then we kind of moved into the kind of a shared savings type program initially in conjunction with the affordable, I'm sorry, the accountable care organizations, ACOs, which all was focused on quality outcome-based methodology to save money. So i.e. if you're doing what you need to do as a referral source, or an institution or a physician, and you're saving time, resources, money to a program, you should be entitled to get a percentage of that back. So if you met these certain select waivers and form these types of arrangements, whether commercial or even, in fact, federally based, that you could see a significant benefit. And, you know, that was all the rage in the wake of the Affordable Care Act in the last uh, I guess five, six years. Some of these still are around, but at some point the model has evolved. And I think CMS recognized that we have to make this even easier for these types of providers to engage in value-based arrangements and outcomes. And Mike, you indicated that based on the goal initially. How do we coordinate the care? How do we teach patients in order to care for themselves or educate them as to what their care could be? How can we coordinate multiple disciplines and types of specialists in order to save and benefit the patient. We used to look at it, Mike, right, and you're in a hospital system. The idea that we don't want to have adverse outcomes, right? We don't want to have these so-called never events. And so how can we really preclude that? And CMS under, in 2018, solicited these types of potential exceptions and safe harbors uh, and so did the OIG regarding value-based. And so here on slide 25, we have value-based activity. And essentially, you know, it's not unique. It's basically this addresses the provision of an item or taking of some action or not taking of some action, meaning coordinating the care or ordering or not ordering a test. And I think the hallmark is as long as it's not going to harm the patient or to reduce the quality of care. You know, you have a value-based, an argument at least for a value-based activity. And then we talked about the arrangements, right? So essentially, it's essentially that all these organizations are trying to have a stated purpose when we talk about a target patient population. And that could be a specific demographic in a certain geographic area. 
It could be a certain category of patients, i.e. diabetics and coordination of care uh, and affiliation or even congestive heart failure, chronic heart. A DRG, you know, right. Pain, et cetera. Yeah, and so you have all these opportunities, whether it's a demographic, age, et cetera, and you kind of describe who your target population is. So you've got an idea and a concept. I want to do the following. For instance, many years ago, and it still continues, coordination of care. I have a chronically ill diabetic patient who has comorbidities, and we want to coordinate that with the nurse, between the specialist, between the PCP, et cetera. How do we go out and achieve that? And that was kind of the beginning of the shared savings, the ACOs, and now it's kind of taken one step further in the evolution. So essentially, again, value-based purpose. These are somewhat common sense type definitions. And we're talking about the target patient population, improving their activity, qualities of life, coordination of care, et cetera. And then again, the definition is VBA participant, somebody who is participating or seeking to avail themselves of this type of arrangement. Talked about target patient population. And then the VBE is enterprise, right? And this essentially is the business model. What is going to happen with this type of arrangement? Once we've identified the population, what the goals are, how do we achieve it, what is the business rationale for it? And then we really get into these types of exceptions, and there's three based on the safe harbors for the AKS, but also the exceptions for the start. And again, Mike, you and I both said at the onset of this presentation that this is exceedingly complex. And what we tried to do in the next few slides, come up with a checklist, but it is an ongoing analysis. And I think it's critical to have people focusing in on this and not just relying on some sort of checklist. But this should give you a rough kind of roadmap of where CMS and the OIG are coming from when we're talking about VDAs. Right? There's three types. You have the value-based arrangement involving full financial risk, for instance, um, to the participant, whether it's a physician or otherwise, meaning they have total skin in the game and they have a meaningful, uh, excuse me, a uh, opportunity to enjoy the risk reward of those arrangements. Then we have meaningful downside, meaning that there's skin in the game for the doctor, which could result in some sort of loss economically or gain, but there is some sort of threshold for that. And then we have the definitions on both the Stark on the left and the AKS on the right. And then just strictly value-based arrangements where there is no meaningful risk or any risk. It's just simply this is the arrangement, and we're going to enter into it because it's in benefit to the actual patient or the target population. And as we continue these types of kind of checklists, this is the first one for physicians involving full financial risk, right? And so there is, this is the kind of the hallmark. It's gotta be this risk taken for 12 months. I think the original rules proposed six months, but now it's 12 months. And, you know, right as we go through it, these are relatively straightforward but you've got to have certain check-the-box requirements like record retention and the cost of all the patients prospectively, not just retroactively. And again, we're talking about Stark and the anti-kickback, and there are certain rules and regulations. The second kind of 
that would be the, the full disclosure, full financial risk. The second one is kind of the mid-level tier, right? And again, I'm sorry, excuse me. This is continuing on the full financial risk. And it does not include certain types of remuneration, right? On the start component, we have not applicable because it is what it is. You either meet it or you don't. But then the components on the NKS have it as well. This is the second tier, the meaningful, substantial downside financial risk. And you know, right here, it's we've got some components of risk, duration, methodology, and remuneration. But with the AKS, I think it's much, much broader and much more fluid. And this is kind of the intermediate risk to referral sources under the AKS. And it continues, and some of it is similar to the original you know, full financial risk. And we talk about it has to be in writing, of course, but record maintenance and, you know, it's not a condition of referral. So this, I think, Mike, continues the goal of both the LIG and CMS regarding what is the purpose of these types of arrangements. All right, and the third component is the no risk. It just is what it is. It's a value-based arrangement. And I would almost consider this type of almost a discount or a volume discount, et cetera. And these are the components. And the hallmark of all of these has to be, got to be in writing, got to be commercially reasonable, got to be for definitive time. And, you know, you can't just change the terms willy-nilly. It's got to be basically, hey, if this is the risk, this is the risk. Now, some of these arrangements have not been implemented yet, or we could try and carry them over a grandfather them in, but during the COVID pandemic, Mike, as you know, working for a hospital system, there's going to be changes in costs, et cetera. And I think as long as that's documented, you might be able to avail yourself of some of these arrangements or at least incur less scrutiny. So, and again, we continue on the 15 type elements of value-based arrangements. And again, the AKS and the Stark have different policy initiatives, but at the end of the day, it's got to be in writing and documented fair market value commercially reasonable. All right. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing, bit, yeah. well, I was just going to say in, in general with, with all of these, actually, you know, we talked about how um, indirect versus direct varied, you know, start one, start two. This could have the same thing. You know, what we talk about now could evolve. You know, they set forth these new rules providers go one way and, you know, the government says, well, that's not what we wanted you to do. Now we're going to change the rules. You can't do that anymore. So we could, you know, to, to be continued. Um, and I think in that and vein, quick, it's good. to. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Uh, well, I mean, in that vein, it's good to talk about general lessons in compliance because as they relate to not just right. these changes, um, which some will evolve, um, but just in general as well. Well, absolutely, because I mean, every year there is a solicitation for new potential safe harbors or exceptions, and then also the enforcement climate will change as these are now implemented and the contours develop. You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, space and lease rental seemed, you know, novel or new, and now everybody pretty much knows what those types of arrangements look like and the contours there. And so the parameters will change, as you pointed out. But, you know, I think initially, Mike, just here is that 
uh, to talk about, and not to rehash it, but it's just exceedingly complex, both the AKS and the Starks. AKS, just because it's so broad, it's kind of like the government almost takes the position, I know it when I see it, whereas Stark is very technical, and it has to be compliant in order to avail yourself. May not result in an enforcement action, but it could potentially recall, uh, result in some sort of overpayment determination. But again, you know, the retroactive. I mean, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and that's what we see a lot of times. And when we were in prosecutors' mind, you know, we had cases where, you know, things happened, and then you know, five years later. All of a sudden, that's fraud, even though the payors or the government allowed it to happen for that period of time. And I think that is a, an incredible argument that providers can make when challenging reimbursement disputes, et cetera. And especially well, look at uh, look at the Speakers Bureau uh, alert. Um, you know, these are these are hallmarks of a fraudulent uh, Speakers Bureau, which you know exposes. Somebody to risk, um, and I guarantee you, those cases are already underway. There wasn't; they're not. They've already uncovered many instances um, before they issued the alert. Um, so, right, that's it's, it's, it's hindsight. And you know, again, it's not like the COVID pandemic-related fraud, the PPE fraud, that type of stuff, which is pretty much common sense. Uh, you know, don't take a loan out and then claim. It's for your employee payroll and buy a Lamborghini, right? Those are what those cases are. But, well, don't misrepresent your wet work in order to get a loan from a bank. And that goes harkens back to the 80s, same as the loan crisis. But here on slide 37, Mike, we've got some common issues. Why don't you walk us through? And again, a lot of us, I think it's common sense we've talked about it, but just kind of encapsulate it for us. Sure. You know, I can even I even think that you can you can put these all into one one genre if you want and just say that <clears throat> as any compliance professional knows um it's all well and good to set up the arrangement in a compliant way it's another thing to check back in 3 years later and say so how are things going oh by the way we didn't need this physician so we we stopped you know you stopped going to the hospital and by the way, we added this service line because they needed it, and none of which goes into you know an amendment or you know what I mean. Things change through the years. Let's say there's there's an escalation clause that three or four years later puts it above FMV. It should have been two, but instead, for whatever reason, the parties agreed to five percent escalator each year, and now all of a sudden um, you're at 110 MGMA. Uh, and you've got a problem. It's it's really right. the devil's end. The details, as the as the um, say professional service agreement, you know, moves on right. through the years. And I guess if it's not commercially reasonable from day one, it's not going to get any better in year three, right? And so that's one that's one thing. And then your point's well taken, Mike. I mean, you were a compliance officer as well with the organization and. Basic contract adherence. If the terms say X, you've got to do X. And is it unreasonable not to adjust or review the terms, especially on a high-profile or lucrative remuneration arrangement? And I think the answer is you have to do it. 
So one of the thing, things that we definitely want to see and, and advise clients is that, all right, so you have these arrangements. Obviously, you want to make sure that if you're, you're doing what you're supposed to do, because that's the easiest thing for a whistleblower government or regulator to say you didn't do. But also, are the terms commercially reasonable? Have they changed, right? In the sense that, well, in the middle of a pandemic, if you're buying, you know, personal safety gear or PPE, then, you know, the type prices might warrant an increase or decrease depending on the glut or not, depending on where things are. But is it commercially reasonable to continue to pay for a potential referral source at an inflated rate when there is no longer an issue? So I think from a compliance perspective, organizations, entities have to be monitoring that type and I hate to say this, but that supply chain to make sure that from a pricing perspective, at the very least, it continues to be appropriate. But, you know, these are basic kind of 101, but, you know, on slide 38, Mike, any comments? Well, I think with the first bullet point, <clears throat> use of hospital space or equipment without a lease, um, think about an example where <clears throat> a physician group has maybe like a session lease. So it's a non-exclusive use of, of um, <clears throat> a suite, let's say Tuesday through Thursday. Um, otherwise it's being used by, by somebody else and you lease the space, but you gotta make, you gotta realize, you know, there are probably some supplies in the space that the hospital, um, or whatever other entity keeps on hand all the time for everybody that's in there. Um, you know, that might add up and that might put, you know, and if that doesn't go into a FMV determination, you need to change that. Um, and sometimes it's, it's hard to know if you're, if you're the compliance officer, if you're the compliance analyst or even the lawyer, um, you might not even realize what's going on. Um, and sweet. Right. And I think it's also, as we kind of get to the end of our presentation here, that you know, you've got to have this kind of compliance function going on. Ask the questions that you need to ask and ensure you're getting the answers you need from a compliance perspective. You know, you, as a compliance official or individual you know, involved in compliance, we've got to make sure that what the organization is doing, whether it's a one or two physician practice or a large national company is doing what it's supposed to do. And these are just some points on slide 40 that you know, need to be done as well. And I guess one of the things, Mike, you know, from a contract perspective, that contract adherence notion is that there are so many different vendors out there that you can use in order to ensure and tickle when a contract's about to expire or the terms may need to be negotiated, et cetera. Do you guys in your own organization use that? Yeah, I, I, you wouldn't be able to survive without it. Um, you've got to not only, and it can't just be, it can't all rest on one person too. So um, you have to have a contract management system that's got a you know, 90, 60, 30 day um, flag that's that's automated to to everybody, the business owner, the owner of the agreements, uh, legal department, compliance department, which increases the chances of um, 
making sure that you don't have an agreement that is, is just sitting out there, it's not being adjusted or, or, or looked at or reviewed. Right, and I think or renewed. companies, right, can be used for significant arrangements. Not every mom and pop arrangement is going to need that uh, requirement. But I think some of these tips here are, are important as we go forward. But you know, one thing, position ownership uh, from a start perspective to determine who owns what or why we're entering this arrangement, but just ask basic questions. And I just think whatever the contract says, you have to do. And if you're not going to do it, then change it. But document why. Because, Mike, when we were prosecutors, it seemed like a lot of cases and investigations we had started off with, this seems odd. Why is it? And there may have been a perfectly legitimate, rational explanation as to why it was done that way, but nobody could remember, right? Because, you know, Susie Smith left the organization and retired five years ago and had some binders somewhere, but nobody really remembers why or how it worked. And so I think for the audience, that's critical to understand. All right, last slide here before we answer any questions is that these are compliance resources, right? These are things that you can look at that are completely within the public domain and free to assist on your assessment and your investigation. But one of them is simply, what is the enforcement community doing, right, Mike? What has DOJ, the state agencies, or CMS done? Right, and it's not, uh, I would also add, um, reputable law firms, um, when, when you do have something like uh, the stark anti-kickback sweeping changes that we've talked about, some of those can be extremely helpful in interpreting and, you know, encapsulating some of the, the, the trends that are going on. Right. Just like my kids, I don't understand how they do research papers without the Internet. Uh, the same thing, you know, for compliance officials. I mean, you're learning everything nationally. And a lot of these resources are available from organizations that, you know, are simply with the click of a button. So with that, mm -hmm. we're happy to answer any questions that are available as well. Okay, thank you so much, Mike and Sean. That was a wonderful presentation. And uh, we do have a few questions here. So the first one is, what is the biggest compliance risk facing providers? Mike, what's your biggest, as a big system on and the and board, what's your biggest risk? Well, I mean, the biggest risk is what you don't know. Um, like I, you know, when we talked about contract adherence, um, one of the things that I think keeps keeps anyone in compliance and legal up at night is what do I not know? <clears throat> what what things have changed in an agreement that now all of a sudden make it non-compliant, and I don't know about it. How do I know about it? How do I get to? Um, I gotta, you know, who do I talk to 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 see how? This agreement is going, um, and there are ways to um, to put in a process like attestations done on a quarterly or semi-annual basis by the people who are actually implementing and operationalizing um, at-risk agreements, like you know, big cardiology agreements or something. Make sure that you have a almost an automated <clears throat> dialogue with those people, where both sides are prompted at certain intervals to exchange information 
um, to automate that so you you aren't kept up at night. Um, right. That's that's what that's yeah, what I worry about. Yeah. What I don't know. Yeah, and I, I think also risk monitoring, right? What is changing mm -hmm. in the organization, the practice on a day-to-day -day basis, and what we do we need? Because your organization simply isn't the same, you know, in year one that it is in year four. There's evolution, there's sophistication, uh, or changing in service lines. So I think it's important to keep up with what's going on. Thank you, Catherine. Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, we have another question here. Uh, concerning COVID, how has COVID changed the delivery of care under these new safe harbors? I think, you know, and I'll let Mike speak to this as well, but from my experience dealing and advising clients that COVID has been a game changer, not just with the increased funds or the accountability or the opportunities to assist patients and provide quality care, but you know, we've got an opportunity to put these arrangements now within the value-based arrangements exception to do things perhaps that otherwise may have been frowned upon five years ago or two years ago. So from that perspective, I do think the quality of care is still there, the delivery of care is there, but from a fraud abuse perspective, there's an opportunity to really avail yourselves of what CMS and OIG have put out. Right. I, I think... And the word I'm thinking of is sort of a zeitgeist change um, where I think telemedicine is a great example of something that was inching along and now all of a sudden is, you know, shot by a rocket into the present day. Um, there's, a, I think, a general sense of we can do more, um, which I think will accelerate the um, adoption of these um, value-based relationships um it sort of jarred loose some old thinking and maybe some inertia in healthcare delivery um which is you know it, that's an ongoing thing we haven't we certainly haven't seen the end of it just like we haven't seen the end of COVID. that's a great point because we're looking at you know it's not so much the payers with telemedicine as much as some of the regulators the state boards the licensees and the dea and i think that's yep. really going to shift and allow, especially in rural areas, uh, as people, you know, I think we have a paradigm shift. And do I really need to spend two hours in a doctor's office sitting in line, or can I just give you my number? Because if I want to call American Airlines to change my flight, I can give them my number, and they'll call me within 25, 30 minutes. Why can't that be the same for a healthcare provider instead of having to go there for a routine med check or something, right? So I think that's mm -hmm. a great point, Mike. I think those are great points. I think it's really true. Um, uh, I, I think there's been a humongous change. Uh, I mean, even I myself as a, uh, you know, even being in healthcare here and, and uh, you know, uh, working with, with um, uh, you know, experts, experts like you um, all the time and hearing this and, and having heard um, prior to COVID, uh, for example, about uh, telemedicine and telehealth, yeah, I wasn't using it previously because I was like, oh, it's going to be a pain to figure all that out. But now, I mean, to go actually to an, uh, a doctor's office, like you said, Sean, to sit there and, you know, drive there and wait. And then you're just on some of these appointments, you may be just going to go for routine time and just talk to them. And you're thinking, oh, man, I could do this in a telemedicine check. Why in the world am I going to do that and wait and in a, 
in an office where there might be other people there and, you know, coughing on you, who, you know, I don't know. It seems like, yeah, there's been a humongous change, you know? Right. And especially the fact that you know, they're paying for it, reimbursing for it, recognizing it. And you right. know, your point, Kevin, I think the technology has been slow to adapt, but now, I mean, if I can, as a law firm, you know, and it's adapted in every context and every industry has as well, but if we can have an opportunity that with, you know, interface, whether Zoom or WebEx or whatever platform, why shouldn't that be used for telemedicine for those routine issues where I don't really need to have laid hands laid on? Obviously, if it's orthopedic or some diagnostic testing, it's different, but the general run-of-the-mill, right. that's the right. way you reduce cost, you add value to the patient, and without increasing the cost. So that's something that right. without this technology, I don't think we'd have that opportunity. Right, right. So, okay, so we have another question here. It says, it seems like HHS OIG has been focused on big ticket issues. Any insights on those? I mean, some of that's by necessity. Um, there are only, you have X amount of resources uh, to pursue um, non-compliance issues or, or even you know, greater issues, criminal, for example, um, the stereotypical bang for your buck comes with, with big ticket items. But but then you also have, you know, the RAC auditors and those type of people who can hopefully pick up on um, maybe not big ticket, but in, in the aggregate, I guess, uh, highly reimbursed, in, but, you know, highly reimbursed services that are where you find infractions. Yeah, and it's interesting, Catherine, because, I don't know, recently the Inspector General for HHS OIG, Christy Grimm, issued a fraud alert, and they were talking and making the distinction between telehealth and telefraud. And with the advent, and this is pre-pandemic too, but I think it's increased as well, you have opportunities for telemarketers to get back into healthcare, and you saw that with DME a couple years ago, and it's continuing to fall off on that, but also other opportunities as well, especially with the diagnostic testing, certain genetic testing, certain lipid testing. Those types of issues are prevalent because those tests are high dollar and high reimbursement. And so I think the OIG and the DOJ and state regulators and AGs are going to be focusing on those high dollar testing because they believe that you know whether appropriate or not that these tests are way expensive and they shouldn't be reimbursed at that rate well the problem though is that from a provider perspective that these tests are in fact reimbursed at that rate and these payers can change the methodology for payment or deny the claims uh, but again i think there's this reticence and knee-jerk reaction to say everything is bad everything is fraud after it's been going on for a long time. So you definitely see that too on a trend recently with the rural health care healthcare clinics and the uh, past of billing allegations, especially in the Southeast when it comes to certain diagnostic testing. So I think you're going to see those. You're going to see the AKS violations, allegations. Anytime the government thinks money is changing hands, they seem to knee-jerk to a, this must be a very bad thing even though it could be completely innocuous. So you know, from a compliance perspective, everything we talked about regarding these arrangements 
should only help providers going forward. Okay, very good, very good. Um, well, I wanted to thank you both so much for being here today. Did you did you all have any anything else that you might have thought might have might have thought of, or any other advice that you that you wanted to leave with us today? All I could say, Catherine, is appreciate the opportunity to be available. You know, we have tons of things to discuss, and if anyone has any questions, I'm flashing Mike's uh, bio in the email, and then mine as well. Uh, I think I might have been airbrushed there, frankly. So I'll give it a big hand, but especially these days. But ultimately, just thanks for the opportunity to talk, and if any of your listeners or attendees have any questions, feel free to reach out to Mike or myself. Yes, I can confirm the airbrushing, by the way. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for being here today, Sean and Mike. Very interesting discussion, and um, you're always very welcome to come back on and um, and uh, lead a webinar or come on to our uh, radio show or podcast, so I'd appreciate that very much. And, and um so I wanted to tell our attendees also to make sure that you uh, reach out. Um, their emails are on there as well um, if you have any other questions. So um, thank you so much again, uh, Sean and Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Um, attendees, again, uh, use the contact information on the screen for any questions. If you uh, think of a question later, you can send us questions and we'll forward them on. Please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.